0: Welcome to the Liquid Church Podcast, a place where you can hear the timeless truth of God's Word in a way that's culturally relevant and cutting edge. With each message and series from Pastors Tim and Nathan, we hope you'll discover how God's story relates to your own and that you will leave feeling encouraged. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the message. What's up, guys? Welcome to Liquid Church. i Pastor Kyra, and it is a privilege to be here with you all today, whether in person or via church online. Now, today we're kicking off a three-week series called The Queen. I promise I did not name it after myself. <laughs> it's actually a series based on the Old Testament book of Esther. Can you type it in the chat? Esther. Now, I read a book recently by Max Locato called Made for This Moment. And today I want to give him credit for some of the content of this message. Now, quick show of hands, uh, how many of you are familiar with the book of Esther, or Esther, as I knew her. If you're new to the story, Esther was a Jewish peasant who was living around 479 B.C., a long time ago. Now, Esther was an orphan who lived with her uncle Mordecai in the city of Susa, which was the capital of the Persian Empire. Now, our story unfolds 100 years since the Babylonian exile of the Israelites from their land. While some Jewish people chose to return to Jerusalem, the Jews who lived in Persia actually chose to stay in Persia. Exile had been good to them. They had good jobs. They were secure in their positions. And so the Jews living in the time of Esther were actually a people far from their homeland of Jerusalem. Now, if you're wondering, well, where is Susa? Like, where do I find it geographically? Well, Susa is located in modern day iran and back then king xerxes ruled over all of persia so even though esther is a book about a woman we have to start our story with a man king xerxes to be specific and king xerxes had a lot of power but he also had a problem he loved to party the book of esther tells us xerxes was an accomplished drinker who wasn't much of a thinker. He loved to drink, he loved to degrade women, and he was as flighty as the weather. Now, his wife at the time was Queen Vashti. Everyone types Vashti. We're going to hear more from her in a minute, but suffice it to say, you're going to love Vashti. Xerxes' right-hand man was a guy named Haman, which sounds like hangman. Now, that's not surprising because he was a tyrant. Haman was a wealthy guy, so I want you to think private jets, tailored suits, and golf with King Xerxes every Thursday. Now, this was a guy who had the ear of the king, the swagger of a pimp, and the compassion of Hitler. And if that sounds extreme, that's because it is. You see, Haman wanted to exterminate the entire Jewish race, but he especially wanted to kill one Jewish man that really got under his skin. And that guy's name is Mordecai, who was Esther's cousin. Mordecai was a Jew who chose to keep his identity under wraps for a time until he couldn't deal with Haman anymore. But more on that later. And finally, we have Esther. Esther is an orphan. She lost both her parents, and Mordecai took her in as his own daughter when they died. Now, the Bible says Esther had a lovely figure and was beautiful. In other words, Esther was fine. And I've come to understand in the Bible, you can be devout and you can be beautiful too. And that was the case of Esther. Now, I don't know if you grew up playing some chess, but what we got here are all the elements for the best chess game of all time. We have the clueless king, who's drunk and ditzy. And then we have heartless Haman, who actually thinks he's the prime minister, but really, he's just a worthless pawn. We got an entire Jewish nation who will soon be under the threat of extermination. We'll read about that more in next week. And the Jew, whose name is Mordecai. Mordecai is a defiant and determined knight. And finally, we have our heroine, Esther, who's both gorgeous and gutsy. She's going to become the queen. So let's read how the story unfolds. And to do that, I want to invite you to open up your Bible or Bible app to Esther 1. Here we go, church. At that time. King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, and the nobles of the provinces were present. Church, what we have here is the Mardi Gras season in Persia. Xerxes wanted to convince the officials, the governors, the military leaders that his war against the Greeks was a good idea. And he wanted everybody to know that if you were willing to fight for his war, wealth awaited you. And to prove that he could make good on this promise, he hosts a Vegas extravaganza. Let's keep reading. For a full 100 days. He displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet, lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. In other words, church, this wasn't a weekend block party. This was a 180-day rager Anybody here ever gone to a party that lasts six months? Xerxes is showing off. He's got the finest foods. He's sent out invitations to the lords of Susa, which is like the Washington, D.C. of our days. And he's rolled out the red carpet and invited a who's who's list in Persia. We got politicians like Vladimir Putin. We got power brokers like Jeff Bezos and even wannabes like Justin Bieber. They're all there for six months of food Pinot Noir and excess pleasures. It is a pagan pleasure party that lasts six months. And towards the end of his pagan party, the king shows his true colors. On his 187th day of partying, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, meaning he was drunk, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him To bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles. For she was what church? Lovely to look at. In other words, after Xerxes has shown off his wealth, after he's shown off his power, and he's shown off his kingly majesty, Xerxes left thinking, what's left? And then he realizes, oh, I know, I'm going to show off my wife because she is a smoke show. So he asked Queen Vashti to come to his party wearing her royal crown. And scholars say wearing little else. Now, you have to understand something. In the Middle East, the two highest values for a woman were dignity and modesty and this drunk king wants to show off his wife in her birthday suit so instead of treating her with dignity he actually asks her to do something degrading he objectifies his wife and how does she respond well let's read verse 12 it says but when the attendants delivered the king's command queen Vashi, what church refused to come Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Xerxes is playing a game. Do you see it? And the man does not like to lose. But ladies, this is just for you. I want you to channel your inner queen Vashti. She knows there are worse things in life than a man not liking you or a man wanting to break up with you. She knows there will be hell to pay for deciding to defy the king. But she came into the palace with her self-respect and she's going to leave the palace with her self-respect. So ladies, you got to leave a man. I want you to put your tiara on your head. I want you to try to look as queenly as you can. And I want you to give that brother a royal wave, okay? Now back to our story. You don't have to be a biblical scholar to feel God seems absent from this chessboard. We're not, we don't see his hand on the board. All we have are a bunch of drunks doing pagan things for six months. And now a queen has defied a king. God seems nowhere to be found. Have you ever experienced anything like that before? Things feel like they're falling to pieces all around you and you cry out to God, but you hear and see nothing? If you have, you're not alone. In fact, you may be wondering, uh, where is God in this story? You haven't even mentioned him once. And that is an excellent question. Because can I tell you something really interesting? Esther is one of two books in the Bible where God is not mentioned even once. And that's odd because I don't know about you, but last time I checked, the Bible is supposed to be about God. And up until this point, God's been everywhere in the Bible and on every page. He created Eden. He freed the Jews from Egypt. He helped the Jewish nation enter the promised land. But in Esther, God's trail has gone cold. He is nowhere to be found. In other words, we don't see the sea split, we don't see the heavens roar, and we don't see the bushes burning. There is not a single whisper coming out of God. Zilch, zero, nada. Now, I don't know if you've experienced this at all, but there are certain seasons in life where God seems hidden. Where you feel more the absence of God than his presence. And what seems even more painful is that other people hear from him, but you don't. Or other people say, yeah, I know what God's will for my life is, but all you are is bewildered. You don't know if he's there. You don't know if he cares. And all you feel is unsure. Can anybody relate? Does God seem absent to you? If your answer is yes then I want you to know God has a six-letter word of encouragement for you today. E-S-T-H-E-R. You see, one of the themes in the book of Esther is providence. Can you type that in the chat? Providence. Providence is the biblical term that describes how God is purposefully providing for, sustaining, and governing the world. And that includes your life and everything in it. In fact, if you look at the beginning of the word, can you see the word provide? The word provide has two parts. Latin, pro, for Latin on behalf of, and vive, which is Latin for to see. So providence is to see on behalf of. And it's not to see like a passive bystander or a passive observer. God's providence does not merely mean his seeing, but rather his seeing to. You guys know that English idiom? I'm gonna see to it. It means I'm gonna take care of it. I'm gonna handle it. I'm gonna take care of business. That's what it means. In other words, wherever God is looking, God is acting. Can you type that in the chat? Wherever God is looking... God is acting. In fact, I want you to think about providence this way. When God sees something, he sees to it. He's a God who takes care of business. In fact, the author of Hebrews says, God sustains all things by his powerful word. So understand, a providential God can intervene in any situation in dramatic ways, like when he parted the Red Sea, Or he can intervene in unseen ways, much like he does in the book of Esther. Now, you may be sitting here today thinking, well, that sounds great for Esther. But what about me? I lost my job six months ago. When is God seeing to it? I've been struggling with loneliness and anxiety for a while now. Where is God in all of this? Or your marriage may be falling apart and you're thinking, well, where is God's activity in that? You know, if I can be transparent with you for a minute, this past January, my soul felt like it was in a winter season, figuratively, but also spiritually. I felt like I was experiencing God's absence more than I did his presence. And I want to share with you today what I wrote in my journal back then. It says, a battle is being fought for my attention and devotion. The enemy wants to keep me separated from the power that God gives me during my time with him. But Lord, I need you to help me embrace your invitation to meet with you every day. I need power in my weakness Love that covers all sins, grace when I'm under pressure, and a renewal of my heart and mind. There are so many things happening right now that are competing for my attention. COVID is on the rise again. Remember that? That was in January. My husband, Jose, is about to work out of Washington, D.C. for four months. My, friend, uh, my daughter, Gabby, is still struggling to find her place at school. And I feel adrift Lord, can you open my eyes so that I can see your activity and still see you at work in the midst of all these difficult situations? Can you help me find joy in this season of parenting two kids without the, the help of my husband, Jose? I give you all of my anxious thoughts about my kids' well-being, and I pray your providential hand would be on our family. I thank you for the provision of my parents who are coming to help me in this season. It is a visible reminder of your faithfulness to me in a difficult season. I don't know what situation you're facing today, but I want to encourage you with this truth. God's silence is not absence. Seasons like the one I was in They feel more like a desolation. There's anguish. There's a lot of pain. But can I tell you one of the most striking features of divine providence is the complete reversal of a situation. Remember, God's silence is not absence. He is active even when he appears distant. And when something in a situation shifts from hopeless to hopeful or from uncertain to certain, God is actively at work because God is the grand master of your life you may not see his hand on the board because he is out of sight but even though you don't see him his invisible hand is working behind the scenes maneuvering all of the pieces into place and from your perspective things are falling apart but from God's perspective things are falling into place and that's what happens here Against all odds and expectations, there is a complete shift of power between Xerxes and Vashti. After six months of flexing his muscles in front of his guests, Xerxes is made to look like a fool when Vashti denies his request. This isn't a checkmate. This is a fool's mate on King Xerxes. This is a check yourself, fool. You want to look for clues? that god is at work in a situation that feels where he feels absent or distant i want you to pay attention to god's grand moves on the chessboard of your life because god revels in grand reversals in other words church things aren't falling into pieces they're falling into place and all of a sudden xerxes display of importance with his party and his possessions and his power actually reversed into a display of ignorance we get to see his temper we experience his indecisiveness and we see his foolishness he went from flexing to foolish in the blink of an eye and he was so taken aback By Vashti's refusal, he assembled seven, barely sober, I might add, advisors and said, uh, so what you gonna do? Look at verse 15. He asked them this question. He says, "Um, according to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? And his advisors, who are just as dense and drunk as he is, huddle up and they come with this grand idea. They say... Let the king give her royal position to someone else who's better than her. In other words, king, let's find a woman who'll show up, shut up, and make the king look good. And Xerxes likes the idea, and so he goes, bye-bye, Vashti. His men actually go on and recommend that a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king let them be placed under the care of hagai the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women and let beauty treatments be given to them now at first when i read this i was like that sounds like fun i want to get beauty treatments too sign me up for that but let's keep reading then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of vashti The advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now, here's the problem. These women were asked to put their dreams aside for the whims of an insecure king. The women were going to be on a quest for love. They weren't being asked to love Xerxes. They were being asked to entertain him. And FYI, if you failed to be chosen as the queen, you're going to spend the rest of your life as as Xerxes' concubine. You wouldn't return to your family. You'd only see the king at his request. If you conceived children with him, they wouldn't be considered heirs to the throne. And for the rest of your life, you would be condemned to spending eternity with a man like Xerxes. Fun, right? But I want you to get ready, church. Because we're about to see grand reversal number two. You see, God is setting up the board, orchestrating every single piece into place for the benefit of his people. Because into this toxic game enters Mordecai and his cousin Hadassah, also known as Esther. Look at verse five in chapter two. It says, now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named who? Mordecai, son of Jair. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as who church? Esther had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Remember, Esther was fine. And when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had the charge of the harem. Now, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but I doubt that things have ever felt as dark or as dismal for Esther. Esther is in what we call being between a rock and a hard place, and there are two moves in front of her. She can either Win the bachelorette contest and become queen. Or lay low and become one of the king's concubines. Drama, drama, and more drama. And God, seemingly silent. Because here's the problem. A normal to mediocre chess player, which is probably what most of us in this room are, can only see four moves ahead. A grandmaster, on the other hand, can see up to 20 moves ahead. And make no mistake, church, God is the grandmaster of your life. He can see what you can't see, but because you can't and you don't see and you don't feel him at work, there's a real temptation to bend and compromise or stand up with conviction. You know, I was chatting uh, with a friend recently who told me, she'd gotten her son a cross as a gift. And on the Monday after she gave it to him, she asked him, son, are you going to wear the cross to school? If he did, he would be publicly proclaiming who he was, a Christian, follower of Jesus, in a place that feels as pagan as Persia, a.k.a. middle school. And she was sharing with me that when she asked him that, she saw him hesitate and actually tuck the cross underneath his shirt so no one else would know who he was. Why? Because tough times can trigger, at times, poor decisions. And when push comes to shove, And we feel alone, and we feel desolate, and we don't see God moving the pieces of our lives the way that we want him to, we face a hard choice. We can either compromise, or we can stand in conviction. Vashti stood in conviction, and it cost her the crown. But Esther and Mordecai, they compromised. Because Esther saw what happened to the former queen. So what's a girl to do? Do you compromise, or do you stand in conviction? I want you to look at verse 10. It says Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Now, I don't know if you know this, but lying about who you are is a huge deal for someone who's Jewish. When God said, I'm going to bless the world through Israel, it meant that the Jewish people needed to be set apart. They needed to be living lives differently. They were to worship God. They were to love their neighbors. They were to honor their families, all so that they could provide a lineage through whom Jesus Christ could be born. So for this reason, the Jewish people were to remain separate. They were different. They were holy. They weren't permitted to marry non-Jews. They couldn't worship other gods. They shouldn't embrace pagan culture. They had different ways to worship, live, and love. But Mordecai and Esther actually did the exact opposite. First, they compromised their names. Mordecai comes from Marduk, which is a Persian male deity. And Esther, whose Jewish name was Hadassah, became Esther in deference to the Persian goddess Ishtar. So their names identified them more as Persians than Jewish. Now, if that wasn't enough, we also know that Mordecai was on the payroll of a pagan king. Look at verse 19. It says, When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now, to be sitting at the king's gate was to be in the thick Of the political thicket. And to a Jew, that was a big deal, man. Remember, to be a Jew was to be called out and be set apart. No God fearing Jew would be caught dead living on the Persian payroll. But in what is potentially the worst kind of compromise, Mordecai chooses to hide his heritage and he teaches Esther to do the same. And then he enters Esther in this bachelorette contest, knowing that that competition includes a night in the bed of a Gentile king. And he not only tells her, show him a good time, he actually tells her, and keep who you are a secret. And do you know, Esther actually follows his instructions to the letter of the law. Verse 19 says, Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. Church, when I read this, I was like, what in the world is going on here? We've got two Jews burying their identity under several layers of compromise. Why? Because when things get tough and God seems silent, We compromise. We forget who we are. And we forget that we're children of God. Now, I don't know what hard things you may be going through. You may not see God orchestrating the pieces of your life the way that you'd like. But even when God seems silent, I want to challenge you to not give in to the bait of compromise. Don't buy the lie, don't take the bluff and don't get cozy in Persia. Instead, I want you to remember who you are. You are a citizen of heaven. You are unique in all of creation. You have been secured by Christ for all of eternity. And that means that the devil can touch you, the demons can not have you, and the world can not possess you. Because you belong to your heavenly father. The Bible reminds us to see what great love the father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God. And that is who we are. So I want you to stay faithful to your call as children of God. Because in the moment that you least expect it, God is orchestrating his grand reversals. Remember, God's silence is not absence. And that's exactly what we see happen next. Esther and Mordecai are in a pit of darkness They've buried their identity. They've compromised. But how many of you know we serve a Lord of quiet providence? A God who is known as the grand master of our lives, who orchestrates events and situations in our midst to position us for the relief that will come. I want you to look at verse 17. It says, now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he what church? He set a royal crown on her head and he made her the queen instead of Vashti. Esther's story starts out as a hopeless situation. She's removed from her home. She's competing for the crown with 400 to 1,400 other women mordecai tells her to hide her identity and now she has to spend the night with the pagan king who's going to decide her fate good luck beating those odds but in a grand reversal esther now wins the favor of the king and xerxes appoints her as the queen of the entire persian empire any church chess, chess nerds here in the in today how many of you know The queen is the most powerful piece of the entire game of chess. God, who is the grandmaster of our lives, has just appointed a Jewish woman to rule over an entire pagan kingdom. Now that's what I call a checkmate. And now that she's got the crown on her head, what is she going to do? Is she going to try to get back at King Xerxes? Is she going to take over the palace and entire Persia? Going to have to come back next week for part two and find out. Because remember, God is the grand master of your life. When we feel like everything is falling apart, God is causing everything to fall into place. And he does all of this even as he never speaks a single word in the entire book of Esther. We never read, God said. We never read God decreed, but God doesn't have to be loud to be strong. He doesn't have to cast a shadow to be present. He is an eloquent God, even when he seems silent and he is active, even when he appears distant. I know some of you today are going through very difficult things. God may seem silent to you. You look at your own chessboard and all you see are checkmates. You're going through a divorce, you've suffered abuse, you've been unemployed, Your child has suicide ideation. They may have been bullied at school. You may be going through a depression. Can I just tell you, while your circumstances may be bad, your God is still good. I promise you, his silence is not absence. Even when you don't see him, he's working. Even when you can't feel it, he's working. And that means that his promises are still true. His love for you is unconditional. His grace is still amazing and his timing is still perfect you may not like what's going on you may not feel him at times but we know that in all things god is working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes so i want you to trust that your whole life is in the hands of a grand master God may be orchestrating a reversal in your life that you can't even imagine because that's what he does. He sees 20 moves ahead when all we see are three or four. He orchestrates every piece of your life and he controls every detail of the universe. That means your health, your family, your job, your kids, your relationships. How do I know? Because if there was ever a moment for a situation to feel completely hopeless, it's that moment of Jesus on the cross. Jesus himself experienced God's silence on the cross. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But do you know that God's silence on the cross wasn't his absence in the cross. And Jesus never forgot who he was. He never once compromised. Instead, he throws himself into God's hands and says, I'm trusting you in the worst circumstances that any human has ever experienced. I'm going to fling myself on the sovereignty and on the providence of my father. And I'm going to say, I'm going to trust you in the worst because I know you're preparing for me the best. And three days later, we get to see the most glorious and wonderful of God's grand reversals. A death on a cross on Friday became a glorious resurrection on Sunday. And Jesus became the God of the living, not the God of the dead. So never forget, God's silence is not absence. Have hope and have courage that the pieces of your life are being put into place by the God of grand reversals. So to end our time together, we're going to celebrate communion. You know, this cup is a symbol of God's grand reversals. It is a promise that although we may not see God on the chessboard, he's putting every piece into place with his invisible hand. And so what I want to do right now, before we partake, is I want you to think about the situation that you're going through that's made you feel alone. It's made you feel like God seems distant, like he feels absent or silent. But can I challenge you today to look at your situation with a different lens? Instead of thinking God is absent, can you use this opportunity to look for signs of God's presence and so to do that i want you to repeat after me god i trust that even when i can't see it you're working you are the grand master of my life open my eyes so that i may see your activity in my life help me to see you're working in all things even when you feel hidden. Today, I'm choosing to place my trust in the God of grand reversals. If you're a follower of Jesus, I'm going to invite you to take the bread, which represents Jesus' body broken for you on the cross. You can go ahead and take your bread now. And then take the cup which is his blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. You can go ahead and take the cup. And we're going to end our time together by worshiping Jesus. But before we do that, I want to pray. So can I invite you, wherever you are, can you close your eyes, bow your heads? I want to pray for you today. God, I know that there are people in our church right now who are feeling overwhelmed. There are situations in their life that are feeling like everything is falling into pieces. But today, Lord, I want to remind them that you are a God who revels in reversals. Thank you that on the cross, we see the fulfillment of the most glorious of reversals. And because of what you did on the cross, we can leave today with the hope, knowing that you are a God who holds everything together. Everything and everyone is in your hands. We entrust every one of these situations to you. Putting our trust in Jesus, we ask that you open our eyes to see wonderful things, things that you're doing in our midst. We thank you for this truth. We love you, and we pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you want to check out Liquid Church for a weekend service, small group, outreach, or clean water trip, you can find out more about us online at liquidchurch.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, go ahead and subscribe or share it with a friend. Thanks again for listening.